0: Good morning, church, and thank you, Shudong and Aaron and Julie, for the beautiful rendition of that Bach song, I am content in my sorrow, for God is my confidence, amen? Amen. Praise God. Hundreds of years old, and yet we can still sing it and enjoy it. Before we dive into the gospel of Matthew this week, I wanted to give a quick report on my trip to the Evangelical Free Church's Theology Conference. I attend that conference every year, and the topic this year was marriage. There, was, there is always, before the conference, a pre-conference session on Wednesday morning that I try to make it to every year also, and this year's topic was really interesting. For our, uh, our election year, the topic was politics, And the different authorities the church and the state possess according to the scriptures taught by Dr. Jonathan Lehman. And uh, the main conference topic was, was marriage, like I said, and that was incredibly helpful. It started with a sociological investigation of the current state of marriage in the world, specifically in the West and in the church. That was given by Dr. David Ayers, and it was kind of a sad start, but insightful anyways. And it was followed immediately by a biblical theology of God's design in marriage by Dr. Robert Yarbrough. The pre-conference in those two sessions were on Wednesday, and Thursday there were two more sessions on the topics of divorce, as we see it in the scriptures, and how to handle that pastorally, as well as a session on the topic of abuse. So kind of a, a darker Thursday morning. The first session was taught by Dr. James Neuheiser, and the later session was taught by Dr. Nate Brooks. I'm telling you all of these things because they'll be available. You can see all of these on the EFCA's website. There's also a podcast that you can listen to all of these messages and lectures on as they come out. Dr. Brooks, his lecture was particularly helpful for me. He walked through the book of Genesis showing that abuse was always tied, especially in the book of Genesis, to further revelation of the story of redemption by God. So, for instance, when Abraham is first called to go to Canaan, the very next story is him in Egypt with his wife, Sarah, who he calls his sister, and she is taken into the harem of Pharaoh, and it's, it's dark, and it's a bad choice by Abraham, and that keeps happening throughout the book. I found that very insightful, that as we, we look into our own marriages and potentially see things that are abusive in different situations, that it's completely antithetical to the gospel. Amen? There is no place for abuse in our marriages. Thursday afternoon was a time for breakout sessions, and I, had, I attended a session on women's ministry in the church and some strategies for that. Friday morning, I was able to see the fifth session on singleness, which was a, a beautiful message given by Dr. Barry Danilak and how singleness Uh, uniquely pictures the end state of humanity. The singleness now pictures the end state of humanity in the future in a way that marriage can't. And I, I had to leave right after that to catch my flight back here. It was a very full conference. My brain is very full of things, but it was a huge blessing and I learned a lot. So thank you for sending me to Chicago for the week. And to stay sharp, to learn some good things on those deep topics. And I hope that they are a further blessing to you. I always appreciate the Theology Conference, and it's something that I look forward to every year. This week, we return to the Gospel of Matthew after a week off for a really encouraging missions conference. I walked away from our time together last week, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, with a full soul, uh, and, and a desire to see the kingdom of God extended to the ends of the earth and, and a desire to see that done partially by us. I hope you share that with me too. So we'll be back in chapter 13 this week. Matthew 13 is Jesus' third discourse in, in the gospel of Matthew and its primary focus has been on the topic of the kingdom of heaven through parables. Jesus has been teaching us about the kingdom through parables And you'll remember Jesus' parables are short stories or even word pictures that don't carry their meaning on the surface. You have to dig deeper for the meaning of Jesus' parables. So this week, we'll look at three, maybe four, or you might say three and a half parables of the kingdom. And then Matthew will take us back into Jesus' life on a brief trip to his hometown. So let's stand together and read. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 through 58. Again, Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 58. This is the word of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old." And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Please be seated. And let's pray and ask the Lord for him to open this up for us. Father, we thank you for bringing us together again to hear your word, to worship you. We pray that you would give us insight into your word now. Pray that it would mold and shape us into the image of Christ. We rely upon you for that work. We know that it is only in your power. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. I've said over the last couple of sermons that through these parables, Jesus is showing us different facets of the gem that is the kingdom of heaven. You guys have all seen diamonds before, right? Maybe you bought one at great expense for your wife. It's beautiful because it is so cut out. You can see different gleams and beauty within each different cut. That's what we're talking about. The kingdom of heaven is like a beautiful gem carefully cut out for us by these parables so that we might understand it and behold its beauty. The first facet was the way that different people would respond to the kingdom. And that was the parable of the sower. Disciples... True disciples hear with their ears and see with their eyes. They bear fruit for the kingdom. Then Jesus brought us the parable of the weeds, and then the parables of the mustard seed and leaven. Taken together, these three parables taught us that the kingdom of heaven would upend our expectations. The parable of the weeds told us that the kingdom wouldn't be... Flourish over the whole earth. The parable of the leaven told us that the kingdom would start hidden but spread in influence. So these facets of the kingdom are unexpected but gloriously beautiful. They show us the sovereignty and power of God, but they also show us his patience and grace with the lost. This week, Each of these small parables teach us something unique, but together they teach us that the kingdom is something to be treasured. The kingdom has great value. Jesus wants us to treasure the kingdom of heaven above all else. After all, it is a gem. Or maybe I should say it's a pearl. In any case, let's consider first the treasure of the kingdom. In verse 36, Matthew told us that Jesus had left the crowds in the boat that he was sitting in and teaching from and returned to the house that he had left in verse 1 of chapter 13. So in chapter 13, verse 1, he leaves the house and goes to the boat. And here in verse 36, he leaves the boat and goes back to the house. Now he is only teaching his disciples. He is not teaching a crowd. At the end of Jesus' third discourse, we find three parables and a possible fourth in verse 52. The first two are tied closely together. The parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl of great value. Again, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So Jesus brings us back into agricultural life here. He left the field to talk about the leaven and now he's back in the field in his parable. And a man seems to have stumbled across some buried treasure. Who doesn't want to find buried treasure? Being a pirate and going on treasure hunts are the stuff of little boy's dreams. And this guy gets to live them. I mean, not really, he's not a pirate, but in the first century, stumbling over abandoned treasure was the equivalent of winning the lottery. There weren't modern banks or credit unions, so if you were leaving on a journey or going to war, what did you do with all your valuable stuff? You could let family or friends watch it for you, but some people were not so trusting A surprisingly common option that was frequently taken was to bury the treasure somewhere no one would be able to find it except you. But suppose you don't come back from your journey or you don't make it through the war. Well, then the treasure is hidden and only found if someone stumbles over it. So it was a pretty, I don't know if I'd say common, but pretty typical scenario. This man has won the lottery. Jesus doesn't give us many details in this parable. We don't know if the man is working in the field or just walking through. We don't know if this is a farm or a random abandoned piece of land. All we can infer about the details comes from the man's actions. He finds treasure in a field, but instead of digging it up and taking it with him, he covers it up. And then he goes and He sells everything that he has and he buys the field. He understands that what he's found is something of much more value than all of his possessions. Gaining that field is more important than anything else now. He's willing to part ways with all that he has so he can buy it. Because he's been given secret knowledge, hidden knowledge, treasure hidden away. No one else knows about it. Only him, and if he wants to make the find legitimate, he knows he better own the property. After he owns the field, anything in the field is legally his. So when confronted with a treasure of such immense value, the man decides to cast away every other possession he has in order to obtain it, which is the point of the parable. The kingdom of heaven is a treasure that, when found, makes everything else we have seem worthless in comparison. Everything else is counted as loss in light of the kingdom of heaven. And when confronted with this truth, we we don't begrudgingly cast aside our former lives. Notice the attitude that the man has as he goes and sells all his possessions. How does he do it? He does it joyfully, in joy. Just like the man joyfully ran to sell all his possessions in the field when we are confronted with the kingdom of heaven, we joyfully acquire it at any cost. And so the second parable in verses 45 and 46 is almost identical with a couple of key differences. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So a man finds an unexpected treasure and he sells everything to obtain it. Similar to the first. But notice a few differences. This merchant is looking for pearls. He's seeking them out. In the first parable, the man stumbles across hidden treasure. Jesus includes both men so that we can understand something really important about the kingdom. Both seekers of the kingdom... And those who aren't looking for the kingdom will be confronted with its great value and respond properly. The kingdom of heaven is for seekers and skeptics. Both groups are called to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and to turn to him. Both are called to forsake all else for the kingdom of heaven. The man who stumbles over the treasure isn't looking for it. There will be many who aren't looking for the kingdom but who are confronted with it. Maybe this is your story. Skeptics, agnostics, atheists, people dedicated to their own religions, the, uh, the fabled nuns of our generation and so forth will understand the value of the kingdom all of the sudden because the spirit will confront their heart and soul with it. But the pearl merchant is pictured in the market sorting through pearls but finds only one worth selling all his possessions for. And in the same way, seekers who find the kingdom will throw away all other competing ideologies. Maybe this is part of your story. You were seeking out the truth. You went here and you went there and you got into philosophy and so on and so forth. But when confronted with Jesus Christ, you threw all other ideologies away to pursue him. No other worldview stands up in light of the kingdom of heaven. Another difference in the parables is what the buyers of the treasures can do with them. The finder of the treasure buys a field because he plans to spend the treasure. He recoups what he spent on the field and then some. But the buyer of the pearl obtains it only for its beauty. If he wants some gain from the pearl, he would have to resell it and therefore lose it. The merchant simply delights in the pearl. And that's why he buys it. And this tells us two things. First, the kingdom brings much gain into the lives of believers. We gain a a new community and a new communion with the Lord. A new basis of relationship with Him. We gain new life in the Spirit. We gain a new family and community in the church. The kingdom of heaven brings countless blessings with it as we enter into it. But, But second... It's also to be prized in and of itself. We don't just come to the Lord because he can give us stuff. We come to the Lord because he is worthy of our worship in and of himself. We discover that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So the second parable is intentionally hyperbolic. A realistic, pragmatic merchant wouldn't ruin himself in order to obtain one pearl. But that's what it looks like to the world when people abandon their former lives in order to enter the kingdom. It looks unreasonable. But to those who understand the value of the kingdom of heaven, it is the most reasonable. It is the only decision that can be made. All else is counted as loss. Which, of course, Paul put most beautifully in Philippians 3, 7 through 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Of course, among those things that Paul counts as loss are not just his possessions, but his education and his nation and his family and his heritage. None of it compares with knowing Christ. The kingdom of heaven is a blessing beyond all blessings. It is a blessing simply to behold it. And it is a blessing to experience it. Amen? The third parable in verses 47 through 50 is the parable of the net. And this is the only parable that Jesus gives his disciples that is immediately followed by an explanation without them asking. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age." angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing teeth. Maybe you've noticed that the parable of the net is almost identical, very similar to the parable of the weeds except that it's much shorter and uses an example from the everyday life of Jesus' disciples many of whom were fishermen by trade. The kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea, the Sea of Galilee in particular. This would be a dragnet, a very large net that would catch everything that it possibly could. These guys weren't sport fishermen. They were trying to get large catches of fish to sell so they can live off the profits. But That meant that the painstaking work of sorting through the fish had to be done. The bad fish... Were any dead or diseased fish, or any fish that would have been unclean for an Israelite to consume, like catfish, which there are a lot of in the Sea of Galilee? These fish would have had to be discarded, thrown back, or even burned. Again, Jesus is referencing the end of the age. The fishermen represent God's angels. The bad fish are the evil, the good fish are the righteous. The angels are God's agents who do the work of separating the evil people from the righteous people. And unlike the parable of the weeds, we aren't told what happens to the righteous. This parable focuses only on the destiny of the evil. Look at verse 50. Verse 50 is identical to verse 42. The evil are thrown into the fiery furnace which is hell. Jesus repeats his description of hell here as well. He says that hell that in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Fiery furnace of course is another reference to Daniel chapter 3. It is a place of judgment. We could even say in light of Daniel 3 that it is a place of judgment for wrong worship. This place is a place of despair and anxiety where your teeth are ground down from worry. Hell is a place where there is no peace. So why repeat the parable? Why repeat it here? Jesus wants his disciples to understand that the treasure that is the kingdom will not always be obvious to all those who hear. And that the evil evil people will dwell with the righteous in this world until the end of the age, but that in the end the kingdom of heaven will be purified from all evil. The treasure that is the kingdom of heaven will have no imperfections. It will have no blemishes. It is perfect, just like its king. And this might not be obvious to us right now, As we live in the age before the sorting is done, the kingdom of heaven looks like it's full of imperfections, full of sinfulness. But God promises us here that this will not always be the case. And that is a reason to praise him. And so Jesus asks his disciples in verse 51, Have you understood these things? Remember, Jesus has been speaking only to his disciples since verse 36. Jesus wants to know if they're following along. And they respond with a simple yes, which may be surprising to us. We might expect them to ask for further clarification or some type of explanation of these parables. But remember what Jesus told them in verse 11. He said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, pointing to the crowd on the shore, it has not been given. So the disciples have been given supernatural understanding by the Spirit. Their eyes have been opened. And it's not simply that they receive more information from Jesus, even though they do. They have been given the ability to understand. These truths have been illumined for them by the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that their understanding at this point is perfect, Jesus will point out their failure to understand in chapter 15, verse 16. Are you also still without understanding in response to a parable? But they're on their way. The disciples are on the path of understanding. And so Jesus doesn't correct their answer of yes. He accepts their yes And in verse 52, Jesus gives a consequence of their yes. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Now, Jesus' statement here is another parable. He's responding to their understanding of parables with a parable. But many commentators have pointed out that this one isn't like the others. Jesus doesn't start off like he does with the others by saying the kingdom of heaven is like. Instead, this parable says the scribes of the kingdom of heaven are like. So while it's a little different, I think it fits in with the rest just fine. The issue in interpreting this parable is in figuring out who Jesus is talking about. Who are the scribes of the kingdom of heaven? Because scribes so far in the gospel have not been the good guys. Every time they pop up, it is negative. So are these traditional Jewish scribes who have received instruction in the kingdom of heaven? Is that what's going on here? Well, one interpretation says, yes. A scribe wasn't just a a biblical scholar. A scribe at that time is any first century Jew tradesman who uh, wrote for a living. And so in this interpretation, Matthew is referring to himself. Matthew, of course, was a tax collector. This is his signature of commendation. Matthew is one of the 12 who has responded to Jesus with a yes here in verse 51. Therefore, the scribes trained in the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus, are like a master of a house or house owner who pulls the new out and the old. The old and the new is a reference to The revelation of God in the New Testament and the Old Testament. The revelation of Christ in the gospel. Matthew has been showing all along in his gospel how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. As he reveals the new truths of the kingdom. So I like this interpretation a lot. It fits in with the rest of Matthew's gospel. But I think there's a broader interpretation that includes the first Jesus is speaking to all 12 of his disciples. He is training them. He is actively training them here in this section of the Gospel of Matthew to be his message bearers of the kingdom of heaven to the world. Everything that he has been doing has been training them to go out and make disciples. And remember, that's how this Gospel will culminate in chapter 28. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. So the 12 then are these new scribes as opposed to the scribes only of the old. The 12 have the teaching of the kingdom, the new. But they also understand that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. From their treasure of wisdom gained by the Spirit, they can pull forth the new and the old from their same treasure to show Christ. Which means we must pay attention. The twelve form the foundation of the church as we see in the book of Revelation. In Acts 2, the early church dedicated themselves to the apostles teaching. In the same way we need to dedicate ourselves to their teaching contained here in the scriptures. Praise God that we have the new and the old. We have the treasure of spiritual wisdom in our grasp. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. And praise God that we can receive training ourselves from these new scribes in the treasures of the gospel. God is so good to reveal to us the treasure of the kingdom. We certainly don't deserve to get to know these things, let alone be welcomed into his kingdom. But God is good and God is gracious. And a humble posture that seeks to understand will be rewarded by God. To use St. Anselm's words, we have faith seeking understanding, and we will be given that understanding by God's grace. May the Lord open our eyes to the treasure of the kingdom, and may he give us the courage to forsake everything else to obtain it. The treasure is much more valuable. Unfortunately, many don't see it. And that's the point of the last section of chapter 13. So second, the treasure of Christ. Matthew tells us in verse 53, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So at this point, the third discourse is over. And Jesus heads to his hometown of Nazareth, about 20 miles away from Capernaum, where he's been living and teaching. And this is the first and only time Matthew talks about Jesus' hometown. From what Matthew tells us, this is probably Jesus' last trip home. It also seems like this could be his last time teaching in the synagogue The last time he taught in the synagogue in the Gospel of Matthew was chapter 12, which didn't end very well. You'll remember the Pharisees went out from the synagogue and started to plot how to destroy Jesus. In the same way, Jesus' teaching here leads to further opposition in the story. Listen to how the crowds respond to Jesus' teaching, which, by the way, we don't receive what Jesus is teaching in this synagogue. But it is probably the same exact scene as we find in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus opens the book of Isaiah and claims that those words apply to him. Okay, so this is how they respond to Jesus' teaching. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? I lived in rural Iowa for a large portion of time. And I've got to say, this is some small town talk here. If you're familiar, if you've lived in a rural place before, this might sound familiar. They ask several questions in a row. First, they start with his authority. Where did this man get his wisdom in these mighty works? The last time you'll remember Jesus' authority was brought into question was in chapter 12, where the Pharisees said that his authority was from Satan. So, not a great start, but then they ask about his family. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Of course, they're talking about Joseph, who would have been a known figure in the community. It's speculated that Joseph is probably dead by now because we don't see him in the narrative, and he's not named. But carpenter is the traditional translation Of this word, but it's more like a skilled builder. Skilled builders worked in all different kinds of materials, not just lumber. Jesus would have been trained by Joseph in this trade. It was a very particular trade that was much needed in every town and village. But then they question about the rest of his family. What about his mom? What about his brothers? What about his sisters? They knew all these people. They talked to them every day. Nazareth was a small, insignificant place, a little village. Jesus' brothers are even named, meaning that they were known figures in the community. By the way, James and Judas, later called Jude, would go on to write two of our New Testament books. But apparently, his his brothers, at this point, are not associated with Jesus' ministry at all. And his sisters still live in Nazareth, probably married with families of their own. How could someone known to this little tiny town as a skilled builder possess this kind of teaching authority? Even in the minds of those in Nazareth, you can hear the words of Nathaniel from the Gospel of John. Does anything good come from Nazareth? Verse 57 makes it clear that they took offense at him. They turned their noses up at Jesus. They think that he needs to be taken down a peg and remember his place in society. They think he's getting a bit uppity. And ultimately, they reject Jesus. Luke makes that explicitly clear as they drag him up to a mountaintop, try to throw him off of it. Jesus narrowly escaping. Jesus responds here in verse 57. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Familiarity breeds contempt, as they say. It's hard to accept someone in a place of authority when you saw them grow up. Unfortunately, this sentiment is in the way of the townsfolk placing their faith in Jesus. How can they believe the teaching and work of the skilled builder? How can they trust in someone they played with growing up? Their offense to Jesus has blinded them to the treasure in their midst. Have you ever watched the PBS show Antique Roadshow? Anybody seen reruns of Antique Roadshow? Basically, basically, People bring things on the show that they think might be valuable, and they get disappointed when they're told that they're not. Um, But sometimes there are some really great treasures that are brought on Antique Roadshow, and the whole point of watching it is to see their reaction. So the most valuable thing that the Antique Roadshow ever appraised was a vintage Patek Philippe pocket watch that they valued mistakenly at $250,000. The guy who brought it thought very highly of this watch. He thought, maybe perhaps on a good day I could get six grand for it. So the shock in the guy's face who brought it in is pretty spectacular. He had no idea. But they got it wrong. The watch sold at auction for $1.5 million. It was even more valuable than they thought. Because it's so easy to overlook the most valuable things when they come mundane to our eyes. When we see them every day, they lose their value to us. So may the treasure of Jesus Christ ever be new in our hearts. May we wake up every day with wonder at the treasure of the person and work of Jesus. Unlike the townsfolk of Nazareth, may God bless us with the ability to see the pearl for what it is, and may that pearl never lose its gleam in our souls. And only by God's grace will we be able to even begin comprehending the enormous worth of the kingdom of heaven and the goodness of our Lord Jesus. May he bless us with that knowledge. Sadly, those in Nazareth don't respond to Jesus in faith. And so we read in verse 58, And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The word unbelief in the Gospel of Matthew has a a massive negative connotation for whoever it's associated with. It's only ever used of people who reject Jesus, who oppose him. Others who fall short, often the disciples, they are said to have little faith. But only Jesus' enemies respond in unbelief. So Nazareth is opposed to Jesus. They stumble over him, which is another meaning of the word offense. And so Jesus doesn't perform miracles there, which doesn't mean that he is unable, Jesus is not dependent upon faith to do mighty things. He heals the garrisoned demoniacs, you'll remember. Even though they don't express any faith, they ask him not to. He raises people from the dead without their expression of faith. Jesus is not limited in his miraculous power in any way. Instead, this is his sovereign choice in light of their improper response. This is, in other words, Jesus' judgment on his hometown of Nazareth. What a horrible way to go out. The treasure of Jesus Christ is in your midst and you fail to see it because of your small town expectations and your hard heartedness. What if Nazareth had received their Messiah? What mighty things would Jesus have done for them? They'll never know. And in the same way, when we respond in unbelief, we should expect to see no outworking of God in our lives. The unbelieving world is not only skeptical of miracles, they don't see the obvious ones that happen. They don't see how God is working in his people. And they count it as evil. It's a warning to us today in Jesus' response here. Responding to Jesus in faith is of the utmost importance. If you want to see God work in your life, receive Jesus Christ as he says he is. He is the king of the kingdom. He is the greatest treasure we'll ever receive. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for your love and for your care for us and for constantly showing us the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Lord, we often don't respond to you as we should. We don't recognize the treasure of the kingdom. Forgive us. We confess our unbelief Lord, as we ready ourselves to take communion, may our faith in your kingdom and in your works, in your death and in your resurrection be forefront on our minds. Your word says that when we take communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Not just the fact that you died, Lord Jesus, but what you died for. It is only by your blood that we can be saved. We are so grateful for that. It's in your name we pray.